y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. So this episode of In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is part five of our conversation with poet, musician, writer, Steve Scott. Time-wise, we get ourselves from the 1980s into the 1990s and 2000s, which covers the recordings of many of Mr. Scott's spoken word material. In the process, we learn about Steve making wholesome memories with Southeast Asian prostitutes, his vision of darkness barely noticed, and one face in the millions of Cambodians that were executed in the killing fields. Now, before we get to that latter story, the history professor and me can't keep from giving a quick explanation of the terror Cambodia experienced in the 1970s. The communist Viet Cong of North Vietnam had been using Cambodia as a thoroughfare for their hit-and-run attacks on the South Vietnamese during that country's civil war in the 1960s and 70s. Thus, the U.S. bombed the Ho Chi Minh Trail areas of Cambodia, as it was called, The Cambodian monarchy was overthrown in 1970 and replaced by regime friendlier to the U.S. and South Vietnam. The deposed royal Cambodian powers threw their support behind the communist pro-North Vietnam political party called the Khmer Rouge, who by 1975 had themselves seized control of Cambodia, and thus began the four-year genocide known as the Killing Fields, leading to the liquidation of one-fourth of the Cambodian population. So all that said, Mr. Scott gives... The backstory to his poem, How Many Words for Sorrow. In 2002, I went to Bali, well, to, to meet with some friends in Bali and to take part in an, a Balinese arts event. From there, I went to Thailand to begin planning an arts conference that was going to take place in Chiang Mai at the end of the year, 2002. And then because our church was involved in providing some support for a ministry in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, the deal was, Steve, while you're over there, you have to go to Cambodia. Stop by, check in, see what's up with this guy, see what's going on. So I went and spent some days or like a week in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. This was in summer of or spring of 2002. So I spent some time in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and I got to go around and see the various sites. And among the things that people go and look at when they're in Phnom Penh, some people, is uh, they'll go and look at traditional Cambodian dance or whatever, but they will visit uh, the killing fields and or the the Museum of Genocide, Tul Sleng Museum of Genocide. I went to the Museum of Genocide. I didn't get to the killing fields because uh, I, I, I just stayed with the museum. The museum was basically this converted schoolhouse where they the Khmer Rouge arranged for people to be held and I believe at times interrogated and tortured and then disposed of. And they had all these photographs on the walls 
of people that had passed through this museum that had come in, been imprisoned, been interrogated, probably interrogated with torture, and then then eliminated. They had all these photographs of adults and, in some cases, children who had been deemed enemies of the state and treated accordingly. And I had my little point-and-shoot camera. I took a photograph of a, like a 9- to 10-year-old girl who apparently had been brought in, interrogated, and executed. And I thought, I'm going to do something with this image. And when I got back to the States, I ended up printing it out, editing it a little bit, hand-coloring it a little bit, and then putting it in a shadow box, um, a little bit like a Joseph Cornell shadow box, with some other elements that would be, uh, I felt were part and parcel of either her life or her life's experience or that cultural experience. I put some prayer beads. I put a silk forget-me-not. And uh, her image framed there at the back. Back to Cambodia, while I was there, I was also traveling around. A couple that was involved in missions work and development were taking me to various villages and showing me what was going on work-wise. And at one point... I was, we were way on the outskirts of Phnom Penh, and I was walking across a field because I had heard some musical sounds coming from a distant building. And I began to make my way across that field when suddenly the skies opened up and torrential rain began to pour down. And I got drenched. So I ran, I ran to the nearest building, which um, I think was a, a temple complex with a a kindergarten or a, a junior, uh, some infant school attached. And uh, I began to unpack my equipment, which at that point, point and shoot camera and a mini disc recorder and try and dry it off. Now, in this room were a bunch of small children who were practicing on this xylophone orchestra, this Cambodian version of the chime orchestra and so to test my mini disc recorder i made some recordings of them while they practiced i had shot some photographs just to make sure that my camera worked and when i came back to the states and i began to initially compose that that shadow box around that image of the little girl that had fallen afoul of the khmer rouge i then began to write a poem based on the experience of seeing the girl's photograph in the museum and also on the experience of trying to commemorate her life and memory by building this box. So both the kind of the art making process plus the actual experience of being there all got kind of woven together in what ended up as the poem. And initially I'd gotten the idea of so many words for sorrow from... um, a mystery novel called 40 Words for Sorrow by a Canadian mystery writer. I think his name is Michael Blunt. I'm not sure. Anyway, I'd run with that title just as with the gift of tears, you you, you come up against so much human suffering and you're, and you're left kind of numb by it. That poem, How Many Words for Sorrow, really tried to live in what is it like to stand in the presence of an image of someone 
that was subjected to horrible, horrible sufferings as part of a much larger, horrible narrative. What is it like to be in the presence of that much suffering and try and feel something and then try and articulate the feeling? I wrote the poem of like how I was kind of transfixed by the image of this particular girl, tried to engage with it, tried to take photographs of it, then build those photographs into this box of how all my experiences of trying to make art about this encounter fell short of the actual enormity of the encounter, almost as if she herself were re- was reaching out through her photographic image in order to be some sort of presiding or guiding angel and lead me into a deeper understanding of what it was that was was going on back there in the 1970s. Coming to the understanding that a shadow box and a poem barely comes close to capturing the intensity and the electricity present in that particular encounter in that museum room in which I locked eyes with like a 10-year-old Cambodian girl her photographic image, and I began to th- begin to realize what had happened to this girl, and look at her as an individual, as a person, and say, "Well, how am I supposed to respond to something like this? What was it like for you?" And then, of course, the poem ends. I'm somewhere else. I'm out at another temple, and someone is selling blessings, whereby you, for a, a dollar bill, you can set a bird free. They got these like these cages with small birds on them mm-hmm. in them. And they say, you know, for a dollar you can you can set a bird free. So, so you buy a blessing by setting a bird free, and then it's explained to me later that you know the birds always come back to where they were initially caged, and so I, I end up by imagining her as one of those small birds, but as someone who is able to break free from that particular cycle of fleeing and returning and actually ascend the heavens and start to ask some important questions once she gets up there. I wanted to remember, so here's what I arranged in a small black box. Your picture, softly lit and gently toned in order to erase or somehow change the shadows I saw bordering your stare. And then I put a tiny bamboo cage, this snow-white flower, one forget-me-not, and a single strand of wooden beads for prayer. I recall the place where we first met, the hard light falling bare across the walls, Stained with all the numbered, broken ghosts, this will not fade, and I cannot forget my plans to take the image of your face and hold it in a box next to my heart. Before I even started, I got lost and fell into the darkness of your eyes. I closed my eyes and dreamed that I saw steps, 
spiraling upwards in this quiet space. You were the angel waiting, standing there, taking my hand, beginning to share, perhaps, some of the things that they whisper once took place. Some say heaven and earth were silent, blind and deaf, while others mention grace and mystery. But only these deep shadows now are left as dreams and explanations all collapse. Were you a messenger? Did you simply disappear? An enemy of the people or the state? I must confess, I dare not try imagining your fate. This box-like room grows cold. The stories still not told wait for the words. How many words for sorrow might there be? I could locate some. I would plant them here. Letting them glow, I'd watch the slow release of fragrant snow-white threads that spiral, turn, and trace unanswered questions overhead. But later, when all is said and done, I'm just another tourist seeking shade. A temple offers shelter from the sun. Sensing a kill, that's when the boys move in. They've got it made. Like walking trees, their branches thickly filled with pulsing, crying, tiny bamboo hearts, the voices high and shrill. And so it starts. For one US dollar bill, I too can buy a blessing, set a small bird free. Sounds okay, I guess. What's not to like? I close the deal. Confession. People tell me I've been played. The whole thing really is a simple trick. This bird, a blur of wings, flits out of sight, circles the ornate building once or twice before returning home. It's just a game. This cage is all the bird has ever known. Now I feel sick. I'm not too wise, it seems. I'll smile and thank them. Then I'll walk away and file it. One more lesson for the day. But even now, I fear there's no escape. These shadows slowly taking shape inside. This small black box found where my heart once ached. If God was here, what would he have learned? Some say he's deaf and blind, but I can dream you 
breaking with your usual round of flight, to spiral upwards in the burning light, tear wings and breath, scream to the empty sky your questions. Please tell me what you find. This may be going down a rabbit trail, but I was having a conversation with someone from a different culture. I was trying to explain to them about in Asia, to be forgotten is worse than death, especially after you've died. And so that's why you see so much uh, emphasis put on uh, like tomb sweeping, they call it in China, or honoring the de- oh. honoring the dead. And I was relating it a little bit to where, uh, like you're saying with a little girl, in my mind, I think it's tragic if her death was for nothing. And so I feel like some meaning that can come out of her death, her execution, is us remembering not only her as an individual, but also you know why she died or who killed them. What are your thoughts on that? Because the, the person I was talking to was kind of like, well, isn't that kind of pointless in the end? You know, shouldn't we just concentrate on the living instead of you know maybe wasting time with the dead? No, it's not a waste of time. My, th- my thoughts are immediately upon hearing you say what you just said, my thoughts are that um, the, the electricity or the, the intensity that I experienced in that encounter in that museum of genocide when I locked eyes with this particular image of this particular nine, ten-year-old girl was that it was like, remember, remember me. Mm. Remember me. If you walk away from here with nothing else, from your experience in this exotic country, in this museum celebrating a terrible past, please remember me. So there's that. And that that kind of ties back to an earlier piece, he said, segueing smoothly, <laughs> called No Memory of You, uh. in which, I, you know, I just waited out among the ladies of the night in Southeast Asia with a tape recorder and a little notebook full of baby pictures. Or you made a recording of that uh, poem and also used, I guess, recordings of the prostitutes on your Butterfly Effect album. Ex- exactly. That that no memory of you. That, um, that came from a phrase that one of the girls said to me. Like, Inda, she said, you know, you have memory of me. And she was pointing at the camera mm-hmm. and the tape recorder. And she said, I have no memory of you, which is fine because I wasn't about to give her anything to remember me by. Um <laughs> But <laughs> that was one of the the kind of the impulses behind that that going out. I mean, I cannot say I would hate anyone listening to what I'm saying to think that I sat down and planned all these things. Yeah. It wasn't like that. It was just like one day I'm I've been at an arts conference in Bali. Now I'm in Jakarta, Java, and by day I'm going out and I'm buying cassettes of Indonesian music, I'm buying shadow puppets, and whatever I can find on the shadow puppet tradition mm. in English language, I'm buying that. By night, I mean, I'm eating dinner, I'm th- sitting around, I think, okay, what am I going to do? And I think, and it, it occurs to me, go down to the, like, the hotel lobby store, buy a blank cassette, 
try and get to the nearest red light district you can find and talk to the girls with your tape recorder running and show them some baby pictures. So I go off and uh, I find out that like directly across from my hotel, there's all these girls, you know, trawling back and forth. So I go across and just begin, start talking to them. And my point of my intro, my point of reference is a handful of photographs of my one-year-old daughter. Because I, I had this feeling that, you know, like family, domestic relationships, love or whatever, represented a, th- a third space. You know, like you're not trade. You're not going to be like buying their services. And I didn't, I felt squeamish about, you know, telling them they were going to hell, trying to save their souls. Mm. I just thought, no, just deal with them as three-dimensional human beings with aspirations for a life of their own. And who knows why they're on the street here. The ones I talked to, some of them said that, um, you know, they come from the villages, they'd they'd gotten married and the husband divorced them once they hit the city and they had nowhere else to go. They were, so they were on the street as as prostitutes, as hookers. Uh, And they were young. The impulse was to just just be horizontal Mm. with them. Don't buy their services and don't look down upon them. Right. Those, were the, those were the two instructions. <laughs> <laughs> no memory of you. Night time. Tide of headlights. Rush towards. Weave down the road. Roaring wave. I flag down a cab, he pulls over, I say take me to Jalan Blora, the driver stares across the street and points, now I understand, sleepy eyed girls sitting in the lobby of my hotel, stepping in and out of elevators, practiced blank face, sheathed in tight black dresses. I cross over. It's early. The street is almost empty. Phantom glow of neon light, flickering bar signs, smell of sweet fried potato from the food stalls. Children sit on the curb, tilt soft drink bottle. Girls cluster in doorways, lean on parked cars, stare back. One or two tilt their heads at me, call me over. I go into a bar, climb the dark stairs, Immediately, in a dense sea of noise. The place has a dance floor the size of a postage stamp. And it is packed full. Jerking bodies swept together and melted into a single form in the white hot stuttering sweep of the strobe light. 
There's a notice on the wall at the back. One way indicated toilets, the other just said massage. Girls sit either side of me. One starts the conversation, wanting to know which hotel I'm staying at. The other gets up and slides away, leaving a cigarette packet balanced on her half-empty drink to keep her place at the bar. After a quick beer, I get up and leave. It's too noisy, I tell the first one. I can't hear myself think. Back outside, I assemble my camera. Bar signs, street shops, girls and kids swim in and out of view. A few strike blank-eyed poses. A few object to being photographed. One protests, telling me, no pictures, and then begins to laugh as I take about half a dozen. I watch her blink in the flashlight, dazed, smiling, shaking her head. We talk, trade names, Inda. All the time, Taxi cabs pull in and out of the street, figuring an easy fare, because they know that once you've scored, you're going to need a ride back to your hotel. I go back later, no camera now. The street is thicker, pulsing. One girl, thickly made up, sitting on some stone steps. Where are you going? You want me to come to your hotel room? We go round. I ask her to explain this going round business. She says, you know, go round. I say, I don't know. So she starts to whisper a more detailed explanation in my ear. But she keeps bursting into fits of giggles and doesn't get too far. I tell her, thanks anyway. And also mention my wife and baby. Run into Inda again with friends and we stand and talk until midnight. I'm talking to some guys still in school, one in the military. They tell me the girls go for five or ten dollars a night. Someone like Inda, maybe fifteen to twenty. And a really nice girl will go back to a five-star hotel $25. Indonesian slang for a hooker is perak. 
And also now on the street, they're called Roxanne, after the police song. The girls come in from villages, central or west Java, sometimes married, abandoned by their husbands once they get to Jakarta, look for work, hit the streets. That's the reason, one of them tells me, they don't like to be photographed. They are ashamed and frightened that there's a chance that somehow someone from their village will see a picture. At last, I bid them all good night. The boys, Inda, her friend, Nancy, solemn handshakes all round. Inda blows me a kiss. Next night, I take a camera, a cassette recorder, and pictures of my baby daughter, Emma. The street is quiet. I talk to a few people. One girl calls me over. She knows enough English to explicitly detail what she can do for me. I show her some baby pictures. Later, Inda and Nancy show up. I pull out the tape recorder and Inda starts to laugh, saying, no, 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 no. I pull out the pictures of my daughter again and quite a few girls crowd around and look at them, rapidly talking back and forth. Inda turns to me. She's a very happy baby, she says. One of the girls offers me a cigarette. I tell her I don't smoke. Inda starts in. No smoke, no drink, no ladies. Later, it's time to go, and this time it really is goodbye. I'm flying back to USA next morning. We stand and talk for a few minutes more. You have memory of me, Inda says, pointing at my camera and tape recorder. I have no memory of you. Nancy asks me when I am coming back to Jakarta. I say, maybe next week. We all laugh. Much as my experience in the, the Tool Slang Museum, there was like a real energy in the air when I locked eyes with that image of that 10 year old girl. When I got back to the hotel room and I sat down and I put the cassette in and I listened to the girls talking and I had like a cassette full 
of them just chattering and laughing and talking, saying nice things about my daughter, things like that. I just felt so utterly, transcendently happy. And the whole room seemed to be on fire. In what way? I don't know. I can't explain it. But just as the tool sling experience had one kind of darkness and one kind of intensity, the idea of sitting in my hotel room in Jakarta and just hearing these girls talking and realizing that I I captured something mm-hmm. that I could I could which I ended up turning into something for the butterfly effect. And when I was able to write just an account of what it was like to be on that street and then create sound loops out of the girls themselves talking and the girls themselves teasing me about stuff. Like at one point, one of them offers me a cigarette and uh, I turn that down. And so Inda started, you know, no smoke, no drink, mm-hmm. no woman. So I got that. I had that on tape. <laughs> I thought, great, I'm going to loop that and that's going to be all over that track because that's, that is so funny mm-hmm. that, that kind of exchange could take place. It was great to try and make some kind of artistic response to it. But of course, it's always going to fall short of the actual encounter. I took a big pair of scissors. The light gleamed on them like a pair of raised bird wings. And I cut the sun out of the sky, folded it up and put it in my pocket. Nothing much happened at first. I watched a couple of gulls fly into the hole by mistake, and a crumbling mansion of clouds sailed in gently after them. The sky became a duller blue, the shadows soaking into the ground like stains. I stood helpless as a jet vanished through the hole in the sky. It left a thin, vapor trail like a scratch across a record. Slowly the daylight began to flake away like old paint, and on the beach the holiday makers awakened, the useless suntan oil making gleaming rivers down their half-done bodies. The shadows tangle like untended plants, making a garden of altered perspectives. I switch on the radio, but there is nothing but the usual conspiracy of records. But outside, the dogs are howling at the sky, and the birds are refusing to leave the trees. It is two o'clock in the afternoon. How much darker is it going to have to get before somebody realizes that something is wrong? Sun poem. I love the imagery on this thing. Like I said before, that was my first introduction to you, the album, The Butterfly Effect. I, I guess because I'm probably a visual person, I like books with pictures more so than books without. But you describe this, you know, cutting a hole in the sky and, and you know, birds flying into the hole or a plane. I love it, but I have no idea what it's about. And I'm hoping you're going to enlighten me today. Well, I think the first thing 
Uh, let me state the numbingly obvious. <laughs> I think the line, how much darker is it going to have to get before somebody realizes that something is wrong, mm. is definitely a 2021 line. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's, yeah, I didn't think about that, but yeah, that, that should be a meme. Yeah, it should. Yeah, there you go. Or okay. a t-shirt or something. Something that, that creates a revenue stream for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it out to your legion of fans that are listening right now to get on that. Legion, legion is the key word. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that poem, along with songs like Come Back Soon, was written in the, you know, like very, very early 1970s. I don't think I had a very specific frame of reference other than attempting to depict sort of the effects or the impact or the aftershocks in a world where something as central as sunlight or the sun or a foundational point of reference or whatever has been taken away. So I wrote that poem and I was performing it in the early 1970s at various spoken word events. Other people were performing it as well. Uh, Nigel Goodwin, one of the founders uh, the architects of the Arts Centre Group in London was using it as part of his speaking events. So the poem was like around in the early 70s and was part of my, you know, my quiver, as it were, my arsenal. And it deals, as did this sad music or a song like Tower of Babel, what happens to language, reference, society, civilization? life as we experience it if something central whether that be like a, a shared belief in god or some fundamental moral reference point or whatever in, in the case of the poem the image or the metaphor was the sun and i thought okay we take the sun out and slowly the sunlight fades or the after effect of the sunlight fades from the absent sun and you make a list or you list all these consequences and you end by wondering, well, you know, are we just going to get used to it getting darker and darker and darker? I mean, it's not a particularly subtle piece of work, but that was the intent. And uh, when I was recording in the 80s, uh, you know, I was writing, you know, The Emotional Tourist and Love in the Western World and When Worlds Collide and Ghost Train. But I was, uh, as I got towards the end of the 80s and uh, on into the early 90s, uh, I began to drift back towards my first love, which was not being a rock performer, more like just a spoken word stand-up uh, artist. And I, you know, I was very impressed by, well, everyone from like Patti Smith to Laurie Anderson to John Giono, um, Allen Ginsberg, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, you know, people that were taking poetry and not abandoning poetry, poetry but delivering it in such a way that it was visceral. It made contact. It was a high-touch concept. You built a bridge really quickly to an audience. It was never going to be like I have a rock band behind me while I recite poems. Because of another a, a Gospel of John project I was working on at the time, I'd really gotten into ambient music and working with sound loops and experimenting with uh, sort of minimal, droney, spacey, trancey 
kind of uh, approaches to music, the stuff that came to be known as ambient music. And I thought spoken word over that, because those, you know, loops and or passages of found sound create a certain kind of atmosphere, and you speak over the top of that. So that revived for me. I have more control over the spoken word than I do over when I'm trying to be a rock star or something. Well, that said, the Butterfly Effect is on the label Blonde Vinyl Records, which I believe was owned by Michael Knott, the musician from the Lifesavers. How did that come about that you ended up on that label? That that came about like this. And I'm going to try and be as succinct as possible. I was down uh, for a Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference in the Costa Mesa area. And we're talking like 1989-1990, something like that. I'd already gotten into correspondence with a professor at Biola University, a guy called Dan Callis, because I'd read something about what Dan was taking his classes through, what he was exposing them to in terms of contemporary art, performance art, and stuff like that. And I thought, wow, okay, he's doing the right thing. So I began to correspond with him about what, what, he was do, what he was doing as an artist, as a painter and a mixed media artist anyway, and what he was doing with his students, what he was exposing them to, taking them to see Laurie Anderson, people like that. Um, and I just got, got talking with him. And then when I was down at this pastor's church workers conference in Costa Mesa, we were close enough whereby Dan Callis and Roger Feldman, who taught sculpture, sculpture at Biola at that time, we all got together for breakfast and just began to talk about modern and postmodern art and helping younger Christian artists engage in a meaningful way with all that. One of the things that came up was the possibility of me coming down to Biola and talking to the students. And so I did. And that's a whole other story. But one of the side effects of me going down to Biola and talking to the students is uh, I started to meet people who were on the fringes of a record label called Blonde Vinyl. They began to talk to me and I began to talk to them about the possibility of putting out this project I was working on, that it was, that was a spoken word project. And so then the conversation proceeded to where I was talking with Mike Knott and a whole bunch of uh, other people. Ken Bauer, Christopher Colbert. He was in Breakfast with Amy, I believe. Oh, yeah, I, and I love that band. Yeah, me too. Uh, They're bizarre. They are feeling lost, feeling naked, deep depression, can't seem to shake it. Always worry about such Christopher Rumba or Rumbo or R-U-M-B-A-U-G-H. And he's one of the Christophers that I would be not one to leave out of my rounding up of the Christophers who were instrumental in getting me into the blonde, into the environs of blonde vinyl. Imagine a Venn diagram between some of the sort of the fringes of the student body of Biola and some of the faculty and what was going on at Blonde Vinyl. And I kind of, I stepped into that. 
of course, spoken word has a hard time getting a lot of traction. Did you get a whole lot of response or any response or did it get played anywhere that you're aware of? What happened with... Can I rephrase uh, my question? Um, well... Because I don't think I asked it very well. It sounded kind of demeaning. No, and I'll tell you a story about that. Okay, um, go ahead. I'm down at Biola. Uh, another thing that's happening is that a British publisher and a poet and a painter named Rupert Lloydell has written to me from England. We're talking like around 1990. This is all, all happening in the same time frame. He's written to me and he sends me some of his books, books of his own poetry, other books of poetry, books of critical essays. His publishing company, Stride, does a British edition of a Calvin Searveld book on the arts. And he's writing to me where he's starting to write back and forth about doing like a poetry collection or um, a small collection of essays on the arts. And we ended up going with the latter and it was called Crying for a Vision. And A, they bought tons of copies down at Biola. Thank you, Biola. Uh, made it like a textbook sort of thing. B, it led to my next book through Cornerstone Press in 1997, Like a House on Fire. But immediately to your question, I ended up going to an English festival called Greenbelt to give some talks based on that book. Okay, now we're zeroing in on the story. <laughs> I'm in the tea tent. I'm drinking coffee. There's a, a couple at the table, Peter, Isaac, and Marlies Slacht. They bought Lost Horizon, the rock album, based on the photograph. So here I am, I'm talking to them. It's 1991, so I'm now doing, as well as my talks, I'm doing a spoken word performance with tape loops. And they see, I guess, they see the spoken word performance. Here we are in the T-Tent talking, and they start to say things like, would you ever want to tour the Netherlands doing this kind of stuff? You know, it, we worked on a way of making it really economical, keeping the costs down. We could get you into places where you could read some of your poems and play sound loops, you know, that people would go for this in a big way, or people would go for this in a small way, but a significant, or whatever kind of way. But then they said this, they said, when Christian artists, or artists who say they are Christians or whatever, go over to the Netherlands, they tend to get not booked or even blacklisted based on their confession of faith. Now, that's just me repeating a conversation for like, a million years ago so of course it's going to sound it's, it's going to be approximate and then they and they said it doesn't matter how experimental their label or they or whoever think they are once the booking agents suspect that you are a christian doesn't matter how alternative you think you are in the christian subculture once you're suspected of being a, a christian or known in some way then you want to get booked into these clubs. And then they said this, we can book you into these clubs. And the only reason we can book you into these clubs is that nobody has the slightest idea of who you are. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, could be a kingdom principle at work here. So back to your question, I still get responses from people to tracks on the butterfly effect 
crossing the boundaries, we dreamed that we were strangers. And the most recent one, Cross My Heat. And I'm still getting, I get correspondence on all those tracks of all those albums. So what it didn't have in terms of like immediate mass impact, it's kind of made up for in terms of uh, longevity. As the, the sort of the, the technology for distribution changes, I can just post tracks on YouTube now and they will gain a brand new connection, audience, uh, and they'll seed a whole new generation of conversations. So in, in terms of impact and effectuality, that is what I think is going on with things like the butterfly effect. It was, I did get to perform like in 1993 and 1996 in the Netherlands and United Kingdom and places like that on the backs of that project and related projects. And I'm still in conversation today with people such as yourself that kind of came into these, the Steve Scott orbit uh, as a result of projects like that. If you enjoyed this conversation, of course, you should give the previous episodes with Mr. Scott a listen. Also, you can go to his website, cryingforavision.wordpress.com, where you can find a web of faith art rabbit trails. And also, if you're still in a Southeast Asian mood, you might check out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 224, which features one segment of a Vietnamese-born man telling the story of his family's escape from Vietnam into the Philippines and eventually to the U.S. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbeam.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. I'm born a different life.